Hello and a warm welcome to this podcast, part of the Church of England's Living in Love and Faith initiative. As individuals, it could be said that we, to quote Walt Whitman, contain multitudes. We are an intricate tapestry of unnumbered strands. From sepia postcard ancestry, true, embroidered or forgotten, to a smartphone photo scrapbook of recent adventures, archived memory and prized relationships. We are a compound sum of past and present, out of which it could be said our identity evolved and became. In this episode, with the Bible as our guide, we'll be contemplating the diverse and layered elements of the human condition and considering how the benefits of salvation could open the door towards the completion of identity. My name is Stuart Henderson and I'm a poet, broadcaster and songwriter with four theological scholars and specialists convened from two of the Living in Love and Faith research groups, we say, being human, the story of our lives. Like a ready-to-be-opened bottle of sparkling water, my eminent panel are effervescent with eagerness. Mike Higton is a professor in the Department of Theology and Religion at the University of Durham. He's responsible for academic input into the university's validation of the Common Awards Partnership, whereby students study theology, ministry and mission. His most recent book is The Life of Christian Doctrine. Dr. Susanna Cornwall is Senior Lecturer in Constructive Theologies at the University of Exeter. Her books on theology, gender and sexuality include Controversies in Queer Theology. Formerly, she led a project with the West of England NHS Gender Identity Clinic exploring spiritual care for those undergoing transition. Professor Simon Oliver is Van Mildert Professor of Divinity in the Department of Theology and Religion at Durham University. Ordained to the priesthood in 1999, he is a former acting dean of Jesus College, Cambridge, past chaplain of Hartford College, Oxford, and former honorary chaplain to the Helen and Douglas House Hospice in Oxford. The Reverend Dr Andy Angel is vicar of St Andrew's Church, Burgess Hill in West Sussex. A former secondary school teacher, he spent four years in parish ministry in Dartford in Kent, before moving into the training of others for Christian service in the southeast. He's also a former vice principal of St John's Theological College, Nottingham, where he taught the New Testament. There's a section of the LLF book which proposes that salvation is intrinsic in recognising and repairing the beauty and the brokenness of individual identity. Mike Higton, perhaps you can start us off by explaining what we mean by salvation and why you feel it's so necessary. Salvation in the end, is the name for the restoring of health, salus, health in Latin. It's an all-encompassing phrase, naming the multiple ways in which 
There are narratives leading from brokenness, from death, destruction, from all the ways in which things are, are wrong or imperfect or inadequate in the world towards their healing, towards their restoration, towards things being put right. So inevitably, it's also the term for the putting right, the healing, the resolving, the completing, the fulfilling of personal identity. The completing of personal identity. Susanna Cornwall, leading on from that, when we consider the human condition, reality of gender transition, would you see that as part of a salvation process, a coming home to the true self? That's certainly the way that, that some people who experience gender variance would, would talk about it. People talk often very powerfully about the the sense of making peace with themselves, com coming to realise something about themselves that perhaps they'd always suspected but not been able to put, put their finger on. In this particular section of the Living in Love and Faith book that, that we're thinking about in particular today, there's lots of emphasis on the fact that Identity kind of arises from lots of different places. Uh, it's something to do with knowing ourselves. It's something to do with being formed in our communities, for, for better and for worse. But also actually about, about being known by God um, and, and the fact that that is the, the most primary relationship that any of us has. Simon Oliver, it's, it's clear from the work that LLF has done that what we do with our bodies carries a certain responsibility. What does that mean in everyday life, do you think? It's a central part of the Christian tradition that God is the creator of all things, uh, including matter, including our materiality. The Bible talks about the, the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit and, and therefore how we deal with our bodies and value our bodies, cherish our bodies, is absolutely vital. And of course we are called to be tender with the, each other's bodies as well and respectful and understand their their sacredness, if you like. And so what we do with our bodies really matters. So we're not, we're not as it were, kind of ghosts in a, in a machine. Our body is not just the stuff through which we experience the world. It's fundamentally part of our identity and who we are. And I think part of our concern about dealing with discomfort in the body, dysphoria, that, those kinds of things, is a, precisely about respecting our bodies and making us whole. Andy Angel, there's a striking phrase that leapt out at me in the LLF book, which was the image of God animating human life. That sounds to me like it could almost be divine allowance to determine our own sexuality and identity. Is that how you see it? No. That phrase to me takes me back to the beginning of John's Gospel, where we have Jesus uh, the Word of God, uh, with God from the beginning. Uh, and the Word of God is is linked in the thought around the time that John was writing to the image of God. Uh, the Word of God, the image of God, Jesus, leaping into reality to bring about the kind of salvation that Mike was talking to a bit earlier. The idea of the image of God animating human life uh, speaks to me of the encounter of the believer and the encounter of the church community with the living Lord Jesus Christ as he nurtures us, leads us and teaches us into the way of life that God would have for us. 
If you're a fan of the misanthropic TV mastermind, Dr. Gregory House, as played by Hugh Laurie, you'll know that his cynical, seen-it-all outlook can be summed up in one phrase, people don't change. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't agree. Both Old and New Testaments are crammed with case studies of lives transformed, mental and physical afflictions healed, and bonds liberated. Mike Higton, the LLF book encourages the exploring and discovering of our identity through being changed, renewed in Christ. How does that then play out for those who feel they've been harmed by or not allowed to be themselves in a church environment? One of the things that it's important to do at the beginning of an answer to that question is distinguish between God and the church, distinguish between Jesus and the church. Right at the heart of Christian belief is the deep conviction that we can all find fulfillment, can find healing, can find salvation in relation to Jesus. And the church is supposed to be the community of those who bear witness to that, who point to it, who help pass it on and invite others into it. But the church is fallible and frail and has often been very bad at passing that message on. It's distorted it, it's restricted it. The life of the church has failed to communicate it in word and deed and relationship. The message that Christians have for people is not that the church is the perfect community and that by coming into the church you'll automatically find that everything is healed. It's that the church points to the source of healing, to Jesus. There's also a journey that the church is on. Individuals might be brought into relationship with Jesus, but they also bring with them challenges and opportunities and questions for the church and help the church sometimes to see ways in which it has been failing to pass on that message. The church gets converted by the people who join it. I want to disagree a little bit with Mike. Uh, I'm not sure we can separate quite so easily between people in relationship with Christ and the church. To be in relationship with Christ means that we join his body, we join the church. But that church is a messy place. Um, most, I think, of my experience of the mess of church life, and I've seen quite a lot of it because I've been in the church since I was a kid. I've got two ministers for parents. There are multiple problems that lead into most city, messy situations in church. And I, I'm not sure I've ever come across an innocent party. And one of the things we're called to do as church is to work with each other, acknowledging our own contribution to the mess, to repent to one another and to try and work through the mess. I mean, that's been a bit of my pastoral reality in the last few years with members of my congregation who struggle over various things and working out how we work together and working out how we arrive at unity um, because we're on a journey. Susanna, you've had, well, you have ongoing pastoral experience of those harmed by the church, very much on the fringes. What would you say then to Andy and Mike? I think one thing I would say in response is that the burden is not equal for everyone. It's sometimes very easy to think that, you know, when we're having a conversation, the, the, the playing field is, is level without perhaps sometimes acknowledging how difficult it is for, for someone to, to even be in the conversation in, in the first place, uh, perhaps because of, of triggers or reminders of, of past experiences and, and, and so on. 
I've I've kind of spoken to to people quite a lot, some of whom have said, why do I keep putting myself through it? Why do I kind of stay within a church that perhaps tells me that there is an aspect of me that is sinful or broken? Some of those people have decided that actually it's too toxic a place and, and they can't continue to be there. Others have said, actually, it's really important that I do remain here that I do kind of stay in the conversation otherwise it's too easy for those who would prefer that I wasn't here at all to think okay well you know you're you're not here anymore that's that's fine but I think that's it's not the same answer for everyone and it's not even necessarily the same answer for the same person at at, at different times of life. Mike Higton? So Andy was right to um, pick me up earlier where I realise it could have sounded like I was saying that on the one hand there's your relationship with God and on the other hand quite separate from it is a relationship with other people, uh, which is certainly not what I wanted to say. But that the call of God, the invitation of God deeper into relationship with God, into that healing relationship with God is at the same time an invitation deeper into relation with others and specifically an invitation into the body of Christ, into the community of the church. But one of the the uncomfortable things about having a conversation like ours today is that inevitably we're talking in generalities we're talking in the abstract um, that's that's sort of built into a conversation like this where people from various different contexts got together in a slightly artificial conversation to talk about issues that go really deeply into individuals lives and yet we can't talk about specific individuals because that would be inappropriate and the way that this call of God deeper into relationship with God and deeper into relationship with others plays out in any individual life is different. For some, given the complexity of their situation, the only way of pursuing the next steps on their journey will be to step back from certain instances of the Christian community, certain church communities that have, as she said, become toxic for them. Um, Talking about those things in generalities makes them sound very abstract talking about them with individuals in in the real texture and mess of their lives is is very different. Now, on one level, the Bible can be seen as a, a depressing chronicle of the most depraved and gruesome of human excesses. Certainly with a PG rating, if not an 18, I'm thinking of Genesis 34, 2 Samuel chapter 13, Judges 19 to 21, What purposes do passages describing subjection, rape, and even worse, serve, do you think? And how do they help believers? Susanna? I think I'd say it's, in one way, it's important that we acknowledge that there are narratives like the ones that you've mentioned in the Bible that are deeply disturbing. It's important that they're disturbing because actually at such time as we as we sanitise it or, or bowdlerize it, actually we're risking not facing up to the whole story, you know, the, the whole human story, the, the the whole messiness. And we could see it as a, a kind of series of vignettes of not just one community, actually, but but several communities really working out what it means to have a God, what it means to to be in a relationship with God. But all of that is not to say that actually the the difficult and the, the disturbing parts of the Bible are not difficult and disturbing. And on a parental level, for you, would you censor what parts of the Bible you, you read to your child? See, I'm married to a biblical scholar, so we have all kinds of, of disagreements about this. My husband's tendency would be to say it's really important to almost do some pre-screening uh, about 
kind of what's in the Bible. It's dangerous, it's disruptive. And my tendency is more to say it's really important to know what's in there before you start disrupting it and queering it and disturbing it and, and pushing back at it. So at the moment, I have a, a three-year-old who you know, likes to reenact David and Goliath and will go around chopping people's heads off, um, is kind of very clear that you know David is on the side of right and that Goliath is a baddie and, and all of that kind of thing. Now, in some ways, I would love... I'd love us to live in a world where actually we didn't have narratives of goodies and baddies and that kind of thing, but but we do. And, you know, he's only three, so who knows whether we're doing an awful job of this or not. But I think our, our tendency at the moment is to say, let's read the stories, let's try and ask questions about them as we're, as we're going along. Who knows whether any of it will stick? And actually, maybe in, in 10 years, he'll turn around and say, you know, how, how on earth could you have exposed me to something so dreadful but you know that will he that will be his decision to make when the time comes simon the the excesses of gruesome humans how does it help believers yeah it's it's a very very difficult one and and i think it's it really comes down to what we think the bible is uh, we want to say fundamentally that it it is the word of god the word of god written it's authoritative for christians um but I do think that when people say that scripture is God's word, some people hear that as saying it therefore isn't a human word. And it seems to me that scripture, of course, is divine, but that doesn't stop it also being a profoundly human book because it is about um, humanity's dealings with God and God's dealings with humanity. And, and I think the overriding point about scripture really, when we take it as a whole, is that the sin, the darkness, is something that touches us all, but it is not the last word. The last word is Christ. But that's not to say this is a fairy tale that, you know, it's all nicely tied up at the end, because we're still part of this ongoing story. You know, we're still in the middle of it, uh, and we will be until the eschaton, the end of time. So we're still living through all this tension and dilemma um, that we read about dramatised, in, in the Bible. Andy? I wanted to maybe push back a little on something Susanna was saying or possibly add something to it. I'll let Susanna decide which I'm doing. The, the Bible's full of difficult texts. God speaks through canonical scripture. Some of these texts are difficult to some Christians in some places and in some generations. And others of these texts are more challenging to other Christians at other times in other places. And one of the things that we have to acknowledge as a church with scripture is how we deal with the text in the teaching situation that we happen to be in, in our own generation. We're taught within scripture to teach the way Jesus did. And Jesus claims, at least in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, to teach with gentleness and with kindness. So I don't think we should take people to breaking point. And whenever we're dealing with difficult texts, we've got to say, okay, what is the teaching situation that we're in? And where do we go with this? How far do we go? And what bits do we just keep silent on? You know, we're talking about kids' favourite stories earlier. My kids love David and Goliath as well. We had six months of it. Um, they've grown up reasonably healthy and neither is prone to violence. So be encouraged, Susanna. But um, one of our other texts was Ecclesiastes 3. We had months and months and months of that. Um, a time to speak and a time to remain silent. And I think that's got to be key. 
In the Bible, according to the LLF book, there is no explicit positive or negative narrative portrayal of same-sex relationships, nor of trans people. That being so, how difficult is it, do you think, to frame a theology around that? And, and what should be our sources? Andy. Okay. Um, I might have to take issue with the LLF book. I'm not sold on the idea that David and Jonathan had a homoerotic relationship. I, uh, I don't think that's the best reading of the text. Or it, it, is, it, is it not intimated as opposed to a conclusion? Well, hear me out. I'm not convinced either that the, the pice of the centurion, the child, uh, was a pice as in the sense of him being a, a gay lover. But the idea that there is no discussion, I think, is, is an unreasonable one. Um, that, that there is a discussion even though on those two points I might disagree with it. Um, I, I'm actually quite committed to the view myself that the author of the Gospel of John, I will call him John, uh, scholars argue over it, but I'll call him John, um, does take the Greek homoerotic ideal and takes it specifically because he wants to talk about the intimacy of the relationship of the father and the son and the intimacy of the relationship into which they call all believers. Now, I'm pinching that from uh, a book by Eichel van Tilburg, which not all John scholars work with. Some commentators choose to uh, interact with it. Other commentators avoid it like the plague. I'm not convinced by his overall thesis, but I certainly think that perception is there. Um, and that actually there is a biblical narrative with which we have to interact um, not least as central to the story of salvation in the Gospel of John is the idea that Jesus came into the world that we might not perish precisely because God so loved the world. Simon. I mean, it seems to me that there are all kinds of uh, issues that we face in terms of ethics and human living where there is not an evident, easy, straightforward discussion or evaluation within scripture. But scripture provides us with a kind of, with, with a foundation, with, with a certain uh, anthropology that is the framework for our discussion. And I think that, that that includes our experience of gender, sex, and sexuality, of attraction, desire. What Living in Love and Faith is doing is essentially taking scripture as a framework and authority for our discussions, inserting into that other sources, if you like, and trying to negotiate amongst ourselves what it is to live a, a human flourishing life, given the complexity of what it is to be human in the face of God. Mike Higton. If what we're shown in the Bible is the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ, the God who calls us into relationship relationship with God, relationship with Christ, relationship with one another. In doing that, it shows us that this relationship into which we're called, this journey onto which we're called, is a journey that has to do with love, with faithfulness, with commitment to one another, with mutuality. All of these key terms that come up when we're talking about same-sex relationships or about gender or about any of these other 
difficult ethical issues that we face are terms that are right at the heart of what scripture shows us about the lives into which we're called. And if it's drawing all of that into faithful, loving mutuality with God and with each other, then of course our our bodies, our genders, our sexual relationships are going to be ingredient within that. Susanna, with you being immersed in this very difficult area, how hard has it been for you to frame a theology around same-sex relationships and the the struggle for trans people? I think the answer to that depends in part on what kind of text or, or set of text someone thinks the Bible is. One of the things that I often come back to is Richard Hooker, the, the 16th century English theologian who said, scripture is, is really important, but there are some things on which scripture has not seen fit to pronounce. In other words, there are there are things on which we continue to have the responsibility to make up our own minds. And we don't do that without the story that we're part of. We don't do that without the, the kind of hints and flashes that, that we do see in scripture, but we don't have the whole story. We read the Bible alongside other sources of revelation, alongside our, our reason, alongside our experience. And it still doesn't answer the question for us of, of what we do with those texts, where we want to be as a church, the, the kind of things that, that we want to do. Um, so that's exciting and promising, but it's, it's a difficult place to be in. Throughout the LLF book, there is a quiet urging that the starting point for the study of the primary topics begins with the consideration that a human being's core identity finds rest in being prepared to accept the enveloping distinctiveness of Christ. Ideally, the resulting conduct should produce a showing of reciprocal dignity and an acute listening to each other's stories. It's the LLF heart song, if you like. Now, Andy Angel, quoting the LLF book, I'm presuming uh, that you accept that the the church's disagreements about gender and sexuality, uh, these disagreements reflect different understandings of how certain aspects of human experience fit within the Christian story. However, where does that leave us, do you think? I think that leaves us where we started off uh, as a Christian church in terms of sexuality, and that's listening to the risen Christ. I'm of the view, uh, forgive me my colleagues in the process, that LLF is simply going to be one step in what is a wider discerning process of the church worldwide. Because when we look back at the church, its understanding of sexuality, it has grappled with scripture before, it's ignored uh, New Testament injunctions before, which have had apostolic authority, and it's gradually come to terms with how God is speaking through them into the church. So, although we're dealing with different issues at a different point in human history, I think we have to come again as best we can, and I know there are difficulties around scriptural interpretation, we wouldn't be here if there weren't, we have to come again to try and hear the voice of Christ. Simon. I, I said earlier that one way of thinking about scripture is that this is what God wants us to hear. And I think there's a subtle difference between saying that and saying this is what God wants to say. 
There is the word of God speaking through scripture in Christ, but there are a lot of human words as well. So it seems to me that what we're doing in LLF is trying to hear what God wants us to hear, but that does mean taking this idea of scripture, learning to hear the human voice in it and discern the divine voice in the midst of that human voice, but then more widely, what does God want us to hear now amongst this generation of Christians? What we can hope for is, I think, that LLF really does bear unexpected fruit in showing us, making evident to us, helping us to hear truths that, to which we'd been deaf until now. The question for me is, how are we being Jesus to one another in the midst of the story that we're in? How are we expressing our solidarity? How are we expressing our, our remorse uh, and, and our regret? There's something important about being human, which is being in that story, living through the process, yes, with a, a hope, uh, a resurrection hope and, and, a, and a hope for the eschaton, but also a realisation that, that this is the world in which we're living. This is a world in which we continue to get it wrong. We continue to hurt each other. We continue to, to damage each other, but that Jesus is, is with us alongside it. We have a responsibility to, to kind of live out Christ to one another in all our discernment. Whilst I know that you would all adhere to the belief that Christ's field of vision is limitless and unimpeded, so that, to quote the LLF book, we see the world and ourselves through it, when we add those filters of gender, upbringing, culture, ethnicity, even how the gospel should be applied, how do we look to the future and move forward as a church, do you think? Andy? I think... For me, what's been quite nice about most of LLF has been the attempt, which for me, again, I think has worked quite well, to forge relationships which are positive and which are constructive, in which we attempt a dialogue in gentleness, in listening. We at least attempt humility and we try to work together in patience. And I think even if we continue to disagree, if we can manage that, then we're working towards the kind of unity to which God calls us. Because I'm not sure God calls us to group cohesion for the sake of group cohesion or making it look like we're unified to the world out there. I think God calls us to, to a unity which is founded in the kind of relationship of love that God experiences within himself as Father and Son and Spirit. Mike Higton. In some ways, I have to say, the LLF process has made things more difficult. On the one hand, I have had the experience of going deep into conversation with people in the church with whom I profoundly disagree and finding that relationships were built in the midst of those conversations. And I, I, that leaves me with a deepened longing to find a way to carry on together as a church. So that's one side of what I've been left with. The other side has been a deepened sense of the pain, the distress, the exclusion, the marginalization of LGBT plus people in the church. So on the one hand, I'm wanting to carry on with the conversation, to keep the conversation going. On the other hand, I'm feeling this need for urgent change. 
to respond to the pain that I see. And holding those two together is profoundly difficult. So I'm left with some profound uncertainty, as well as hope that we will find ways as a church of at least moving some way forward on both fronts. Simon, finally, do you recognise in in you some of Mike's dilemmas and frustrations, but also hopes? Yeah, very much so. I, I think um, one thing I've always found very, very central to my own Christian faith is the conviction that all are one in Christ Jesus. Um, one thing I have learned through the living in love and faith process is that amidst all these different voices, what we say about the human condition in relation to one set of experiences and identities has prof a profound effect on other experiences and identities. So what we say about marriage, for example, and the place of childbearing in marriage to a couple with one set of identities and experiences has a profound effect on what we say about that marriage and childbearing to another couple with a very different set of experiences and identities. And trying to hold that together is an enormous task, but I think it's something that in the end is a matter of God's beauty and grace more than it is of our will. And it's a question of how we receive that um, that gift of remaining with one another in Christ. And actually, Mike, I'll, co I'll come back to you uh, for a PS, if I may, just picking up on Simon's point there. What do you hope for LLF? At the very least, I hope that LLF will deepen the conversation in the Church of England, not in the sense of just keeping us all nattering longer and longer with no change, but in the sense of enabling us to talk at a deeper level, to face up to the real lives of the people most caught up in what we're talking about, to listen to a wider range of evidence and of, of voices, to have a, a better conversation than we have been having, not as a substitute for change. As I say, I'm longing for change, and that longing has been intensified, but a, a change that emerges from and is surrounded by genuinely speaking deeply with one another rather than simply with a political battle of words or a shouting match. LLF, the better conversation. Thank you very much for joining us in this podcast and my thanks to Mike Higton, Susanna Cornwall, Simon Oliver and Andy Angel. There are still more podcasts to come. Please rate or even review this episode and take a look at the further resources to be found at churchofengland.org forward slash LLF. Goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>